world. Well, we are in a series right now. This is week three of a series called Bring Your Own Bible. So like I have, let me ask, come on, let me see him. Who's got their Bible today? Who's got their Bible? Let me, this is what, when, I was a, when I was a kid, my pastor always said, let me see your Bibles, and we all wave them out. If you, if you do not have your Bible today, that is okay. You can grab one from the seat in front of you. There's one down underneath. It's orange in color. And I tell you what, if you do not own a Bible you uh, grab that Bible out of the seat in front of you, and it's yours as a gift from New Life Church. We want you to write your name in it, take it with you, and get it in your heart, okay? And so if you do not have a Bible, that is your Bible. You can take it with you today. And so through this series, we have, we, uh, each year I like to take a, a, a portion of our, of our calendar and just like teach on Scripture, the importance of it, because if we were to ever drift from the authoritative, inspired word of God, then I don't know how we could be a church. <laughs> like we, that we, this is a non-negotiable for New Life Church that we believe that the word of God is the inspired word of God. And, uh, and, and I understand that a lot of people, they, they struggle with, this, with that thought right there. And so throughout the series, I really want to help you understand Scripture, maybe in a way you've never understood it before. Maybe it'll help calm some of the doubts or, or critic, criticisms you've had of Scripture in the past. So what we've done is, so far, first we looked at the reliability of Scripture a couple of weeks ago, and what we found is that there are other sources that our world, our world uses, that they, they fill our history books from other manuscripts around the world, and they have a process to, to substantiate that these manuscripts are indeed uh, 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 intact and, and truthful. And when we apply that same scholarly uh, method of discovering whether manuscripts are reliable and we apply it to the Bible, what we find is the Bible wins the day, like, like, like 10, 20x times more. And one of those things is how many original manuscripts are there. And, and if, if you remember, we talked about two secular manuscripts that we use for all of our world history and world history books and such. Uh, one is the Gallic Wars and the other one is Tacitus's work. He, was a, he, was a, he, he, comment, he wrote commentary on Roman history, like 30 volumes of it. Well, we have 10, 10 copies of Gallic Wars. We have two copies of Tacitus's work, but no scholar questions the reliability of these ancient writings. We put them in our history books. We teach it in university. Well, what we know about the Bible is that there is not 10 and there's not two, but there's actually over 25,000 original manuscripts that are in our possession today. And so what we know is that the Bible is reliable. And last week, we talked about why study the Bible. Like, why is it a big deal? And so, so we talked about how it, you know, it's, it's part of your spiritual growth and that the Bible is, is, is a story and, uh, and that it is important for growth spiritually. And so if, if you have not uh, been a part of our previous messages, you can always catch them online at newlifeforkokomo.org and get caught up on the series. If you have a commute to work, you know, turn that on and, and catch up. Uh, but, but today, I, I want to help you. I want to help you, especially if you are probably under the age of 40, um, I want to help you today. Because those that are under the age of 40, um, you have, uh, our world has challenged your thinking when it comes to the scriptures. If you're over 40, I'm still talking to you too, okay, don't dismiss me, I, but I just said especially. Um, you know, one of the things is that parents for, for many, many years their goal for their kids was always, you know, to, to raise good kids, and they raise them in church, and, and they want to see them go to a good college someday. 
because you know if they get into a good college, they can they can build a good career, and 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 you know, and that that's what that's what parents we want for our kids. We want them to be successful. And for many years, it's all about can we get our kids into good colleges? And so we our kids that we've raised in our churches, and many were raised in this church their entire lives, and until the day that we send them off to university, and then we send our kids off to university, and their faith gets completely destroyed. Gets destroyed. And because the world doesn't need a whole lot of clever arguments to destroy our young people's faith, all they need is our own scripture. And I'm going to show you how they'll use the, the Bible to destroy our young people's faith, because most of us, I know for me for many years, I didn't know how to answer some very basic questions of Scripture. And when, when, I, when, I, when I came to know it, I, I, I was like, everybody has to know this. Everybody has to know this. And, and so, so, what I want, so, so what we're going to unpack today is this, is this theological thought called, the progress, called progressive revelation. Now, the word progressive um, probably has a bad name today, because <laughs> when, when, we, when we talk about progressive things, you know, maybe you're thinking uh, this is some kind of political thing, but, but listen, like, uh, I have progressive car insurance, and it doesn't offend me, okay? So, <laughs> but, but pro- progressive means progress. You see, the Bible is a story of redemption. The Bible is a messy story that when we read it, we should be able to see our own mess in it. But then God is progressing his people through their story to the point of the risen Christ, which is the final revelation. And so, the, uh, so, so a couple things I, I want you to know. The first is that the Bible is inspired. And the second is that God never changes. All right, the Bible, it is in fact, it is inspired. Pastor Devin thinks the Bible is inspired. New Life Church believes the Bible is inspired. And that God never changes. And herein lies the difficulty. When our young people go to universities, and they go to Philosophy 101, the professor, if you stand up and profess your faith, the professor asks you two questions. Young man, young woman, do you believe the Bible's inspired? Well, yes, I do. And God never changes? No, he doesn't. Then they flip the Bible open to some obscure passage in the Old Testament and says, then why would you want to serve a God like that? And they don't have a response, and neither did I, other than, you know, God just does things that, you know, because he's God. I don't know. And, And we try to defend it. And so, but uh, what I want to show you today is that if, when you see Scripture through the lens of progressive revelation, you will see God in the midst of this redemptive story where he wasn't done yet. He wasn't done redeeming the world. But uh, Pastor Devin believes that the Bible is inspired and that God never changes. New Life Church believes that God, the Bible is inspired. That's why we make it such a big deal. We make it a big deal. It is inspired. Spire means to breathe. Inspire means to breathe life into. So when God inspired the Bible, he saw something that that man had written and, and it was inspired and moved by the heart of God. And he says, that is so monumental, that, that is so progressive, that I'm going to breathe life into it. And it's inspired. That's why the, the word expired means to breathe out. And in their printed, printed days of the ancient world, you know, they say, hey, that guy breathed out and didn't breathe back in again. He expired. 
I mean, it's very, very, but, but to, to inspire means to breathe life into. Think about when God created Adam, the first man in the book of Genesis, what did he do? He, he took dust of the earth. He took dirt, and he breathed into it. And so all of you today are inspired dirt. You're inspired dirt, Dan. So when someone says you're old as dirt, I mean, they're not too far off. <laughs> we are all inspired dirt. And when we die, we decompose and go back to being dirt. Why? Because we expired. And the breath of God is no longer in us and we return to what we came from. We are anointed dirt. We are holy dirt. We are holy ground because the breath of God is in us. How much more so when God inspires the word of God that he is breathing life into it? You see, it's the same thing. The Bible is inspired. But but here is here's the if you get anything today, it's this right here. When it, this thought of progressive revelation, this is what we really want to unpack today, is that the Bible is not a static record of what God is. A static record being that it is a, it is a hard line through Scripture that you can turn to any page in the Bible and say, that's what God is. No, no, no. The Bible is not a static record of what God is. Instead, the Bible is a dynamic progressive revelation of what man thought God was at the time it was written and was a giant leap forward in leading humanity to the final revelation in the risen Christ. Oh, that's a mouthful. But think about it. The Bible's not a static record of what God is. Progress. You know this is true. Why, don't, why didn't we sacrifice animals at the altar this morning? Because you know the Bible is not a static record of what God is. But that the story continued to reveal itself over time until the risen Christ, which was the sacrifice of all time. So you know that the, the progress of Revelation, you know it's true. So the Bible is not a static record of what God is. Because here's what's dangerous that sometimes we tell people, if you want to know what God is, look in the Bible. Well, what part? What part? This part, where slaying people and stoning people, I mean, that part? You want to serve that God? Because the Bible's inspired, right? And God never changes. But the Bible says stone children. But does it? Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. So the Bible's not a static record of what God is. It is an ancient story that we are eavesdropping into this, this family story of the, God is leading them into redemption until the risen Christ and the redemption that we all now get to participate in. But the Bible, it is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what man thought God was at the time. It was written, and it was a giant leap forward in leading humanity to the final revelation in the risen Christ. When we make the Bible a static record of what God is, we make it very ugly. Very ugly. And all that we need to say or be told is, ask those two questions. Is the Bible inspired? Well, yeah. 
does God ever change? No. And then we look back to these, some of these stories and say, and that's who your God is? But it's not a static record of who God is. It's a progressive revelation of what man thought God was at the time that was ultimately moving humanity forward in God's redemptive story until the risen Christ. And so if we don't understand that, we can make the Bible quite ugly. Actually, the Bible would also seem extremely contradictory if progressive revelation is not understood. Because in one part of Scripture, it says sacrifice animals. But then in the New Testament, Jesus is like, yeah, that you actually never had to. I just did that to appease you. And so without understanding this progressive story that is being unfolded throughout the Bible, we are eavesdropping into this story that is taking place throughout Scripture, and it's not finalized until the risen Christ. If we, if we look at each part and we call it a static record of what God is, well, then you have to deal with a lot of contradictions. But uh, if the Bible was static, again, why aren't we sacrificing animals? So you know it's not a static record. You know it's a progressive story of God redeeming the world. And in it, we can see God's progressive redemption in us. That's the beauty of it. When we read the Bible, we are, we are getting a look into a, an ancient spiritual journey. So with all that stuff that we can read through, the Old, a lot of the Old Testament is in written in narrative form. What is a narrative? It's a story. And it is important that when we interpret Scripture, that we interpret from didactic verses, not narrative verses. Maybe we should unfold that one more next week when we talk about context. But we are looking into an ancient, ancient story from ancient times with ancient people in an ancient world. And, and this journey is recorded over thousands of years by different writers, with different personalities, at different times, under different circumstances, and for different reasons. It's a narrative. And so all throughout this narrative, that when we look into Scripture, we see this redemptive story unfolding. We can't zoom in and say, that's who God is. No, there's an entire story unveiling here. This is what's important to understand. The, the, the understanding scriptures in the context of historical arc, that where at in the point of history did that take place, and that will help us understand it even more. Let, let me help you again with this redemptive story unfolding, this progressive revelation that happens throughout scripture. In the book of Genesis, there is a man named Abraham. Abram, at first, God changed his name, but for this sake, we'll call him Abraham. Abraham was polytheistic. In other words, Abraham worshipped many gods, as you did in ancient Samaria. Uh, he was a sun-worshipping god, and, and God chooses Abraham, and he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave everything and follow me. And he says, well, who are you? He says, I am El Shaddai. So God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So Abraham, he ultimately, he leaves God, he leaves his family and to follow this El Shaddai, God Almighty. There is no scripture at this time of Abraham. But in Abraham's day, 
They worshipped the sun, and, and, and they, they needed the gods to be happy so that they would, the gods would send rain on their crops so that they can, they can be blessed, and they can live, and they could survive. And so you had to keep the gods of the sky happy. But the question is, well, how do you keep the gods of the sky happy? Well, the priest in these ancient areas, Mesopotamia and Sumeria, their thought was, well, the gods require sacrifice. Well, how much sacrifice? And they would said, I don't know how much. Oh, and we think that the gods require self-harm, self-mutilation, because if we do that, that will appease the gods, and the gods will send rain. This is Abraham's day. And so how much self-harm, self-mutilation do the gods require? The answer was, we don't know. So they would sacrifice endlessly, and they would harm themselves endlessly, hoping to please the gods of the sky that they would send rain. And so from this, God calls Abraham. And ultimately, in their time, they progress. Because how much do you sacrifice? We don't know. How much do you self-mutilate? We don't know. So then they begin to realize the ultimate sacrifice to the gods of the sky is to sacrifice your firstborn child. And so when God calls Abraham, Abraham says, oh, hey, Abraham, I want you to take your firstborn Isaac, and, uh, and, I, and I want you to sacrifice him. I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I find it extremely interesting that Abraham does not hesitate. Why? It was normal. It was normal. Because in Abraham's day, they worshiped the God of the sky, the sun, the moon. And so in Abraham's day, God was always up. God was up. And to please the God that was up, you sacrifice how much endlessly, and you, and, and you cut yourself. How much? We don't know. So endless cutting. God calls Abraham. He says, follow me. He says, and I want you to sacrifice your son. So, so Abraham takes Isaac to a high place. Why? Because in Abraham's day, God was up. He goes to a high place. And, as, and if you know the story in Genesis, uh, you know, Abraham, he, he's about to... He, he, he lays Isaac on this, this, this built altar, and he, he's about to, you know, you know do the thing. And, uh, and God says, stop, stop. And then he has Abraham look and see that a ram was stuck in the bushes nearby. And, and for the first time in human history, a God stopped a sacrifice and provided one. So in Abraham's day, imagine Abraham comes down off Mount Moriah and Isaac is alive. Uh, he was labeled a heretic because everyone else came off that mountain alone. He came back with his son. Because in Abraham's day, Abraham moved humanity from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. That's a really good move. Don't you agree? That's a really good move. But he was seen as a heretic. And actually the Talmud, which is the Jewish compilation of commentary on the Old Testament, say that, that the Bible says that Abraham then left the area. The Talmud says that they kicked him out. Because how dare you make God that nice? How dare you? We all had to sacrifice our children to appease the gods of the sky. But in this moment, was, was, because some people will look at it and say, why would God ask Abraham to do such a thing? 
Well, because this was a huge moment in human history that for the first time, a God would stop a sacrifice and provide one. And ultimately, it moved humanity from sacrificing people to sacrificing animals. That's a good move. That's a really good move. Now, was God done in this story? No. But this first mention of sacrificing ultimately is pointing to the greatest sacrifice of all time in Jesus that would end this kind of thing forever. Pretty good move. So in Abraham's day, God lived. I want you to help me here. In Abraham's day, God lived up. In Abraham's day, how much do you sacrifice? We don't know. How much do you self-mutilate? I don't know. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham. This is what's interesting. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, this will be the sign of my covenant, my agreement with you. See that rock over there? Would you take that rock? I want you to circumcise yourself. I don't know about you. <laughs> Abraham's 90. A lot of 90-year-olds I know, their hand shakes a little like this. And God's agreement was, take that sharp rock, swing hard, don't miss. And this will be my covenant to you. Okay, hold on. That's weird. That God's covenant with man would be circumcision. That's odd to me. Is that odd to you? It's odd to me. Maybe I'm the only one being honest here, but that's odd. But in Abraham's day, God was up, and, and to appease the gods of up, of the sky, it took sacrifice and self-mutilation. And so, so God, he moves humanity from sacrificing people to sacrificing animals. Pretty good move, okay? And then he makes a, a covenant, El Shaddai makes a covenant with Abraham saying, okay, it's no longer endless cutting, endless mutation. If you really feel like that's what you have to do, then I'm going to give you something that you can only cut once. Now, if you can circumcise yourself twice, you're the man. Okay, I don't know. You're the man. Uh, but uh, endless cutting, cut once, pretty good move, don't you think? This is why when the Bible says not to mark yourself, it's not talking about tattoos. It's saying don't mark yourselves, for you are a temple of God. And so, in Abraham's day, God lived up. How much you sacrifice? I don't know. How much, and self-mutation, how much will please God? Well, we don't, we, don't, we don't know. But he moved humanity forward. And then in Moses' day, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And in Moses' day, God wasn't, didn't live up. God lived in a tent called the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies was. And in Moses' day, It wasn't about endless sacrifice. It was about one sacrifice per family per year on the Day of Atonement. So in Abraham's day, how much did we sacrifice? I don't know, as much. Whatever appeases the gods of the sky. In Moses' day, how much did he sacrifice? One time per family per year. That's a pretty good move. From endless sacrifice, well, prior, sacrificing children to sacrificing animals endlessly to now once per year, per family. That's a pretty good move. And now God's not just up, God's in a tent. It seems as though when God moves closer, he starts to look a little nicer. 
and then Moses says, how about this? How about we, when, we, when we circumcise, we do it on the eighth day after a son is born? That way they never remember it. Because they probably remembered their day quite well. That's a pretty good move, don't you think? See, this is the progress of redemption. Progressive revelation. God is getting closer. God's getting nicer until the day that he is fully revealed in the risen Christ. So in Abraham's day, God lived up. In Moses' day, God lived in a tent. And then in David's day, David, honestly, probably out of some political reasons, all of the other people, he'd go visit other countries, and they say, do you want to see the temple of our God? And then he'd go see their immaculate temple. And then David's like, man, our God's the real deal, and he lives in a tent. So we're going to build him a temple. And so, and ultimately, Solomon would finish it, but in David's day, God lived in a temple, and how much did you sacrifice? One time per year, and how much did you cut? You cut one time on the eighth day, and then, so in Abraham's day, God lived, help me, in Moses' day, God lived in a tent, in David's day, God lived in a temple, and then in Jesus' day, John 1, 1 says, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with us. And so in Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. Jesus was the son of God. And, and so, so now God, he's not up, he's not, in a, he's not in a tent, he's not in a temple. God is in flesh. And through Jesus, he then became the one sacrifice for all time. And what about the cutting thing? Well, he was, his hands were pierced. His back was lashed. He, he took it all upon himself and ultimately brought the complete redemption of all humanity for all time. And you no longer have to perform to please God. And actually what Jesus said was, it was never about it anyway. Because even before Abraham's covenant with God, it was faith all along. It's always been about faith. You guys just needed this and, and to be a part of God's redemptive story all along. And, but here it is. You never had to sacrifice anyway. Because Jesus is the lamb that was slain since the foundation of the earth. And, and so this is the progress of redemption. This is progressive revelation. And so when we see this redemptive story all throughout the Bible... It helps, I th- it helps me, and, it, and I know it'll help you, understand some of the scriptures that we say, we put it in our too-hard-to-deal-with box. Do you have a too-hard-to-deal-with box that's full of scriptures? I have. And so understanding the Old Testament through progressive revelation. Well, the, a, a few things. One, that is to, to understand that the Old Testament is incomplete. Oh, well, no, you know it's incomplete. Because if it was complete, we wouldn't have a new one. If the Old Testament was complete, Jesus would have never had to come. He would have never had to die. But he had to. Why? Because the Old Testament is incomplete. And so when, when people point to things in the Old Testament and say, aha, see, your God stinks. The story's not over. The story is not fully revealed yet. So the Old Testament is incomplete, which is why we have a new one. The Old Testament is not less true. It's not less true. Ultimately, the Old Testament was pointing to the ultimate truth, the fulfillment of truth in Jesus, the risen Christ. 
So the Old Testament is not less true, but it, but the, and, the, and also the third thing is the new revelation does not contradict the old revelation. In other, in other words, Jesus does not contradict what the Old Testament says. Instead, what Scripture says is that Jesus fulfilled the old and created the new. He did not contradict the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. You see, there is this ongoing story happening in Scripture that if we don't understand progressive revelation, then we make the Bible very ugly and contradictory. But when you understand this story in its entirety, it all comes together in one redemptive story. A pastor friend of mine told me a story once where he went to a university and he gave a presentation. And after his presentation, they had a time of Q&A. There's about 280 university students there. And this young lady stands up to the mic. And she says, um, she says, is the Bible inspired? Do you believe that? And the pastor says, yes, I do. And do you believe that God never changes? He says, I believe God never changes. She says, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I don't want to go to heaven. She's being sincere. She's not being, being, being mean. She's being sincere. She says, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I don't want to go to heaven. He says, well, why not? I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. I forgot. I should have told you that earlier so you wouldn't have to look right now. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Because she opens to this chapter and reads a story and says, is that inspired and does God ever change? If you are in an orange Bible from the seats, it's page 134. Deuteronomy chapter 21. As you arrive at Deuteronomy chapter 21, I want you to look at verse 10. Verse 10. This is where we're going to start. And I want to show you, hopefully today, that you, you with me will see how understanding progressive revelation can help you with the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10, listen to these words. Listen. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home. Have her shave her head. Trim her nails. Put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. And after she was uh, she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month. Then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And if you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. And this young, this young lady says, if that's what God's like, I don't want to go to heaven. I mean, do you blame her? Clip those nails, shave those heads, capture their city, marry their women. Whoa. How does that fit into the redemptive story? What we have to understand is that there is something going on in the historical arc of the story. In other words, 
this takes place in a very specific time in history. Remember, this is an ancient story. This is not written in the Western world in 2022. This is written in the Eastern world in ancient times. This story would have made sense to them then, but for us now, it's like, ah, why is that in there? Like, do you ever read this stuff and go, God, why'd you have to put that in there? That's hard. Well, let me ask you women a question. Let me ask you a question. And only the women can respond, okay? Girls, would you rather be alive today or then? Today. Because God has redeemed a lot for women's rights. Is he done? He's not done. But man, has come a long way. So what about this story makes it so significant that God would look at that and say, oh man, give me that thing. I want to breathe life into it. I'm going to inspire that. And women all over the world say, if God inspires that, I'm out. I'm out. The question is, did Deuteronomy chapter 21 make the world a better place than it was the day before? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Actually, according to historian Karen Armstrong, this story in Deuteronomy chapter 21 was the greatest leap forward for women's rights in the history of the world up until the time it was written. Because according to Persian, Egyptian, and Greek law, were women people or were women property? They were property. And so to, to Greek, Persian, and the Egyptians of the world, in this day, when Moses wrote these words, during that time, women were considered property. Now we look at this and say, what? did God write this? Well, No. Moses wrote this, but God inspired it. You see, in their world, in that day, all the other people groups of that time, when they would take captive people, when they would go into their city and take captive a city, and they would see all the pretty women, the men would take them to be their sex slaves. They would take them as their own property to use them. And then when they were done with her, they would trade her and sell her for something new. And Moses, he says, ooh, okay, fellas, listen up. I think the heart of God would sound more like this. I think that if you see a woman and you want to take her, um, you don't own her. You make her your wife. You become responsible for her. You will take care of her. And, 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 and as a note to accept her into our community, we're going to let her shave her head and clip her nails and mourn for 30 days because that's how we mourn. So we're going to let her mourn like one of us for 30 days. And then, if you still want her, then you will marry her, you'll be responsible for her, you'll take care of her, you'll help raise her children, you're going to give her a place to stay, you're going to feed her, you're going to love her as a wife, not like these other animals out in this world. And then if you're displeased with her, what he say in, that, in verse 14, if you're not pleased with her, let her go as she wishes. 
You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you dishonored her. This was a quantum leap forward in women's rights the day it was written. Now, was God done redeeming women's rights? No. But the world was a better place the day this was written than the day before. This is progressive revelation. You see, if, the, if we make the Bible a static record, that's ugly. Don't you agree? That's ugly. But it's not a static record. It's a dynamic, progressive revelation of what man thought God was at the time that was such a giant leap forward that ultimately was leading to the ultimate revelation in the risen Christ. So God's not done here, but I tell you what, the world just got better. The world just got better. Don't you think women as people is much better than women as property? You want to do another one? You want to do another one? Let's do one more. Let's do one more. Let's just stay in Deuteronomy 21. Verse 18. Here's some context. One time I was asked, Pastor Devin, are you for stoning children? (laughs) I said, well, it depends on what day you ask me. Not my kids, someone else's kids. My kids are awesome. Are you for stoning children? Oh, Pastor Devin? I said, well, of course not. Well, is the Bible inspired? Yeah, it is. And God never changes? No, he doesn't. Let's look at verse 18 in Deuteronomy chapter 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He, does, he will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear it and be afraid. Are you for stoning children? Is the Bible inspired? Does God ever change? Or is there something going on in the, in the historical arc of re- redemption that we don't maybe understand because this was written at a real place at a real time talking about real people? There happens to be another story going on underneath the surface. A couple things I want to point to your attention. Verse 18 says, If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son... Question, does son mean child? Well, let me ask it this way. Does son mean a little child? No. I mean, Dan's a son, but he's not a child. Okay. So this could be an adult child. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Because in their world, when your children marry, you just build onto your house, and they live with you. And then when you get old, it's great because they can take care of you. But you just keep building on to that thing, and you all live together. Okay, well, how about in verse 20? It says, they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. Listen to this. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 
Is there two words there that make you think this isn't a, a kid? What two words? Glutton and drunkard. Um, because if your six-year-old is a drunkard, <laughs> mom, dad, that's on you, okay? <laughs> that is on you. That was not apple juice. Okay, so it's obvious we're not talking about stoning kids, are we? This is a grown man that will not align himself to be an active participant in his family, but he is a disturbance to his family. He eats so much that people go hungry. He's drunk all the time. This is a problem. And so they take him to the city gate and stone him to death. Okay, whew. Ah, I know. That sounds ugly. Well, let me ask another question. Does the word stoned have more than one meaning? If I told you I got stoned last night, <laughs> what do you think I was doing? I got hit on the head? I might need to get hit on the head. Well, then here's another question. Could stoned mean more than one thing then? And it does. You see, it's symbolic. In the Talmud, which is the Jewish compilation of teaching and study of the Old Testament, it is said that Deuteronomy 20, 21 was never taken literally. It is figurative. And so when somebody did, was ultimately maybe excommunicated from the family, they would take them to the city gate with stones in their hand and basically stone them unto the death they created. And it was symbolic that you must leave now and go into the death that you created for yourself. They never stoned anybody, but it was symbolic. Stoning people was to cast them out into the death they created for themselves. And, and all the ancient uh, uh, rabbinic writings will agree. This was never read literally. In fact, in fact, what would happen is, and then if that son one day were to repent, if you cast him, in other words, if you stoned him unto the death he created for himself, which was a life of gluttony and, drunk and, and, and drinking, if, if you cast him unto the death he created, and one day in that death he chooses to repent, then what you do is you welcome him home and you cook him a big meal. Think about the parable that Jesus tells of the father whose son said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance today. And then the dad releases the son to go into the death he created for himself where he squanders all of his money, finds himself in the pig pen eating the, the yuck of the pigs and realizes that his life is in complete darkness and despair. He said, oh, if my father would just have me back. And he goes back to his father. And what does his father do? His father welcomes him and cooks him a big meal. I can now preach this. Whereas before, I would avoid this scripture. This was in my too hard to deal with box. But when you understand progressive revelation, that we're looking at one part of history of God's total redemptive story. Listen, God's not done. God's not done. But all was revealed in the risen Christ. He's still working today. 
but, it's, but the truth is revealed in Christ. In Paul's day, remember? Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. David's day, God lived in a temple. Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. But in Paul's day, he said the Spirit of God lives in you. God continues to get closer than you ever realized. And here's what I want to leave with you today. Is that God's closer than you've ever thought. And maybe you've been taught all along that a relationship with God is performance-based. That if you please him, he will come near to you. It's actually the other way around. That he came near to you and transforms your life and it changes the way you live. And some, for someone today, that's grace. To be relieved of the thought that I must somehow please God. How much sacrificing? Endless. How much, how much self-harm? Endless. To learn. You didn't have to do it after all. It was by faith all along. This is what's so beautiful about Scripture. Is that in this redemptive story and as it takes place, I see myself in it. In, in the messes, I see my messes. And it's, it is so good to know that even in some of the messy parts of the Bible that you know God's not done because Jesus is on the way. So the Bible's not a static record of what God is. It is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what man thought God was at the time that helped move humanity so far forward that God inspired it until the day of the risen Christ. So as you stand today, I bless you to know that you have a father. Let's all stand together. I bless you to know that you have a father that loves you. I bless you to know that, that his scripture is inspired, and in it we see our story unfolding as we see God's redemptive story unfolding in it. God, I pray that you would give us clearer and clearer understanding of your scripture, that we can help set people free from the notion that this is something they got all work for. Set people free from the notion that, God, that you have been harsh and you have been judgmental, but you have been a God of love all along trying to move us into your reality from our messes. In Jesus' name. Now maybe you're here today and you're like, man, Devin, I, that sets me free. That really sets me free. And maybe you're here today and, and you would say, uh, it's time for me to start a new journey in my life. It's time that I make the decision that, that I will follow Jesus. And I don't know what all that means yet. I just know that I need to do something different. With every eye closed today, every head bowed, that's you today. If you want to respond to moving and aligning yourself to this redemptive story as God redeeming your life now, you putting yourself on a new journey, if that's you today, would you just lift a hand high enough for me to see? Just lift a hand. I want to know who I'm praying for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You put your hand up, you can put it down. Hands up all over the place. Now, that's you today. You don't have to pray my prayer. You, you say it in, in your own words, but it can sound something like this. God, I've been running. I've done things wrong. I don't understand everything, but I don't need to understand everything to know that you are asking me 
to come follow you. And so I give you my life. Would you forgive me of every mistake I've made? Forgive me of every failure and relieve me from the burden, the heaviness that my past has because it's pulling me down. Help me with this new life in Jesus' name. Now, if you pray that in in your own heart, in your own ways, and in your own words, the Bible says that you are brand new, that the old is gone, the new has come, and today marks a brand new day for you. Come on, new life. Would you rejoice with all the angels in heaven out of rejoicing for every person that's made this decision today? Now, if you made that decision today, I want you to do me a favor. I want, I want to know that you made that decision. We want to help you. And so would you just take a connect card and just fill that out? And where it says my decision today was, you just mark what your decision today was, and you drop it in the boxes in the back of the worship center. And, hey, I hope that you have an amazing, amazing week as you participate in God's redemptive story that's still taking place today. Amen? All right. Bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. Hey, New Life Church, thank you so much for joining us today. If this is your first time joining us and you'd like to learn a little bit more about New Life Church, you can text the word CONNECT to the number 765-347-9127. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you guys next time.